Kuf Tavshin Ayin Chet. Coming to you live from the headquarters of Ariel Tours in New York, I'm Mayor Weingarten. Welcome to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Udi Davidi opens things up here on uh, today's live edition of the Israel Show. Thank you so much for joining us and making us a part of your week. We're here each and every Monday, immediately following JM in the AM, 9 a.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Israel time around the world, wherever you are, whatever time it is, that's the time we are on. 
And of course, on demand, on demand. Listen, you missed the show for whatever reason. You can listen today in America because it's a legal holiday, but usually you don't get a chance because you're at work. Go to the Nachum Siegel Network app and listen on the archives. You can even download it into your phone when you're in Wi-Fi and listen wherever you are when you're out of Wi-Fi. And, of course, on the Nachum Siegel Network website, NachumSiegel.com. So many ways. Go to the archives there and click on the Israel Show. So many ways to listen, and we hope you do, and we thank those who do for doing so. Oh, wow. Jam-packed show. We will uh, touch upon... Abu Mazen's speech of yesterday. Abu Mazen is the president of the Palestinian Authority, and it seems like he went off the rails yesterday. We'll tell you a little bit about that. But more important than just watching the train wreck, if you will, is um, what we've learned from the speech. The things that aren't usually said in public. The things that are opposite, that contradict what is usually said in public. That'll be interesting. Um, And the uh, chief of the Mossad, Yossi Cohen, briefed Mossad agents at an internal meeting. Some of the recording was, uh, I would have to imagine, leaked on purpose to the media, and we have it. You'll be able to hear. You don't usually hear the voice of the head of the Mossad. It's usually usually not one of those people that's out there in public. And what's important for us is you'll hear his take on the difference between the current administration in the United States and the one before. Carefully worded, but very obvious. So if if you're wondering what it is that in Israel they're thinking about Obama versus Trump, if you will, listen to this, because here's the, the man on the inside, that's for sure. Um, those are the two big stories. We have some other uh, interesting pieces of information. We will celebrate. No, we are. We'll just mention it, and that's how we'll celebrate it. But we should be celebrating in, 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 in a great way the triumphant visit of Prime Minister Netanyahu to India. India is the largest democracy in the world, to the best of my knowledge. Largest meaning the, the most populated. Over a billion, I believe, people. It is a thriving economic country. And the Prime Minister of Israel was greeted personally, which is not by protocol. Protocol is that the Foreign Minister comes to meet him at the tarmac. No, the Prime Minister Modi, who who has developed an amazing friendship with Netanyahu when Modi visited, Prime Minister Modi visited, visited Israel, he himself came as a show, as a, as, a, as a nice gesture toward the Prime Minister, a show of friendship, came to the tarmac, greeted him as he walked off the plane, uh, warmly greeted him as he walked off the plane, and it's a five-day visit, that is unusually long for the head of a state to come and be with another head of state. Imagine, you can imagine how important they see this. The the newscasts, the TV broadcasts from India that were played over, part of them were played over in Israel yesterday. The leading story was that Prime Minister Netanyahu is visiting India. They have tremendous respect for us. We are clearly 
a country that they want to emulate and want to make um, great partnerships with. And it's so exciting. We, we, it's, it's hard to imagine. I think we need to bring it into historic perspective. It is amazing that this country, which is not part of the West, if you will, not part of the Judeo-Christian ethic countries like Europe, like Western Europe, like the United States, a Hindu country, that has so much to offer us and we have so much to offer them. We of 7 million barely, they of over a billion are very excited to have something to do with us. So um, do you think this is sort of like the uh, beginning of messianic times or middle of messianic times as the process moves into and triumph? We'll, uh, I posted that picture up yesterday on our Facebook page. We'll post more later. We post, of course, links to the songs that we play, articles that we talk about. It's all there, and you can uh, get to it whenever you want. Facebook.com slash The Israel Show. Facebook.com slash The Israel Show. Another great piece of news. It seems clear that Israel has found the key. Israel has found the technological code, if you will, needed to discover these tunnels that Hamas was digging and and really were an existential threat. All right, let's not say existential. They were definitely a threat to Israel, a, a threat to the lives of many Israelis. These were tunnels that we remember in the, in the last, um, in Soketan, that um, that operation that came after the kidnapping of uh, the three young men, Israel suddenly realized, it seems, that there were dozens of such tunnels that Hamas dug underneath the border, and Israel realized that it needed to come up with a solution, and, you know, they came up with a solution with Iron Dome to the rockets, now it seems they've come up with a solution to this, because... We're told yesterday that uh, yet another one of these terror tunnels was blown up. It was an extensive one. They say it was one like they've never seen before. And here's what's shocking. The path of this tunnel underground was un- went underneath the border crossing where people and goods are moved between Israel and and Gaza. So obviously there was a tremendous plan that they were working on to have a spectacular uh, world, you know, event, terrorist attack at the border crossing. Now this is the border crossing where Israel keeps allowing food and medicines and resources to be transferred into Gaza. So you wonder what they were thinking when they were thinking of uh, either blowing it up or kidnapping and shutting it down and so forth. Well, thankfully, Israel, it seems, has uh, found a way to uh, get over that too. This is great. This is 
probably one of the most amazing times that we've lived in in the last few decades for Israel. There is so much good. Of course, everybody's going to try to see only bad, only negative. But the truth is, there's amazing good. Amazing good. Imena Nili Mili, the Solomon Brothers. Here they are. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You're tuned to The Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Solomon Brothers, Im Ain Anili Mili. My name is Mayor Weingarten. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. So as we promised, I'm going to give you a little bit of an inside peek to the thinking of the uh, head of the Mossad. We don't often get to hear that. Now, clearly... This uh, was leaked on purpose because if the Mossad wouldn't want this out, it wouldn't be out. The censor would get to it and so forth. But that's fine because it gives us, really gives us a a good idea of what is going on in the head of the head of the Mossad. The main thrust of of, of his remarks is about 
the policies of the United States mainly regarding the Middle East and how those policies of the previous administration, of the Obama administration, have created an unfavorable situation for Israel. And the Obama supporters out there who think Obama was great for Israel, have, have a listen. So, I'm going to read to you the, uh, I'm going to play for you the clip, I'm going to read to you uh, the Hebrew only because it's a little hard to hear and explain to you the gist of it in English. So the head of the Mossad says that in those years, meaning before the elections, yesh eze metodologia you have to understand he speaks in understatements. He says the, the, the United States has a methodology, a policy that's a little different from what we've known in the past. And it's called, it's called leading from behind. That's a famous phrase that was used about U.S. policy, even though, to the best of my knowledge, President Obama never used that actual phrase himself, but it was used often by analysts leading from behind. He says that mainly it was the United States that adopts this new... um, this new idea, this new policy of leading from behind. So he's saying that this leading from behind, as a result of this leading from behind policy, the Middle East is less interesting to the superpowers, meaning to the United States. Except for ISIS and the sources of international terrorism. Other than that, what happens in Syria, what happens in Turkey, the expansion of Iran, all of that stuff is less interesting to the superpowers. Then he says, where you have that policy, in places where you have that policy, when the U.S. leads from behind, a vacuum is created in the Middle East. A vacuum of leadership. And the vacuum, he says, vacuum in Hebrew is vacuum, la vacuum hazeh, bofen mod muvhak, bofen mod muhach, bofen mod madger in a very obvious and challenging way is a major force for the state of Israel to have to contend with when other forces enter the Middle East because there is no such thing as a vacuum. Be'orsham ka'amur v'chana ma'atzev ha'ikari shalanu echad ha'ikarim hi'iran that because, basically to sum it up, because of the vacuum left by the United States not being involved, the United States leaving from behind, not from the front, or not leading at all, a vacuum is created in the Middle East, and who enters that vacuum to take over? Iran. The Obama administration wasn't so sad about that, to say the least. 
and the head of the Mossad, Yossi Cohen, makes it clear that this is a huge threat and challenge for the State of Israel. Okay, so let's play that first clip for you. Yossi Cohen, head of the Israeli Mossad. So if we are looking today as we are at Iran having literally a pathway through the countries to Syria, to Lebanon, to the Mediterranean. That's what they are building. That's what they are trying to achieve, a caliphate. This is a huge threat, not only to Israel, but the entire Middle East and to the West. Imagine if the crazies of Iran suddenly are able to create a caliphate and take over that whole part and export their terrorism, which they do already, but export it more around the world and create chaos. This is the result of the Obama policy that creates the vacuum. Not to to say, I mean, he doesn't mention this, but the billions of dollars that Obama gave over to to Iran before the deal was was even started, before the the quote-unquote great deal even began, they got all the perks up front. Over a billion dollars in cash. So this is clearly a problem. The head of the Mossad reaffirms that. Then he continues as follows. This is another, he says, another result of leaders and leadership and, and lack thereof, so to speak. We now have a problem in Syria itself. The war never ends. The civil war in Syria, he means. And, very importantly, For the first time in many years, Russia is back on the scene, is back in Syria. You can't imagine how hard the United States and Israel fought decades ago to get Russia out of the area. And here, all had to happen is the President of the United States with his really misguided policy to just allow Russia in. And now we're stuck with them back in the Middle East. Again, remember, he understates things. He says this, Russia's return into the uh, into the neighborhood 
is a challenge, quote-unquote, a challenge. It's very sad. It's not that, I think it's not that we didn't, we couldn't make these distinctions and these, these judgments ourselves, but having the head of the Mossad say it and hearing it in his own voice, I got to say, is, is very uh, scary, is very disconcerting. Okay, here's the next clip. Yossi Cohen, head of the Mossad, about um, what's going on in uh, Syria, the return of Russia to the region. I want to say another question of leadership or of leadership. In the context of that theory of the world, in Syria, there is a problem. First of all, the war is not going to stop. For the first time, Russia is going to return to Syria. This is what we have seen from our country, from Israel, a challenge. That's a f- nice way of saying a threat. Now, here's a key point. Seriously, I know we're coming up after a weekend where the President of the United States is accused of, of making uncouth remarks. Let, let's be honest. He, he, could, he could find much nicer ways to say the same things. But also, let's be honest, that the Oval Office has heard much worse language than that. Just, it wasn't leaked. And, 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 and the press and everybody on the left didn't, didn't go crazy over it. Listen to Yossi Cohen saying, how now, after the Obama administration... He doesn't say the words Obama and Trump, but he says, United States of this past year, meaning the Trump administration, is changing its policy. We're seeing a good change, a good shift. We're seeing a policy in the United States that takes into account Israel's um, Israel's security needs and interests in a greater way than they did before to ease to alleviate to a certain extent the, the, our struggle to to undo the Iranian expansion, to make it change direction, to make it retreat and put the balance in our favor. This is what the Trump administration has done. We're beginning to see dramatic changes. We are seeing dramatic changes in how the United States understands the strategic threat that is the Iranian aspirations, the extreme Muslim extremist aspirations 
of Iran. That is such an important thing. What a shift going from an administration that was protecting Iran, basically protecting Iran in order not to hurt the deal, to going to an administration that understands the importance of containing Iran. And then he goes on to say, I, I got to tell you, I think this is a, a key This is a key point, I think, in, in, uh, in understanding the situation. He says, as he's looking at this picture, at the change that's taken place in United States policy, I'm not interested in trying to analyze the conduct and the tweets of the leaders. Okay? So, what more obvious a reference can we have? I don't care what he tweets. I don't care what he says. I don't care what language he uses. I care about the policy that is creating a dramatic shift in the Middle East for Israel's benefit and the benefit of the security of the Jewish people. And he be Israel. The relevance the meaning that the actions of the United States has toward or affecting the uh, the security of the state of Israel. Dramatically changing the way the United States understands the needs of the state of Israel. Okay, here's that clip. Astounding. Remember, I think the key to the whole thing here is I don't care. I'm not focusing on the behavior. I'm not focusing on tweets. I'm focusing on policy and how the dramatic change in the policy is good for Israel. את האינטרס הישראלי הביטחוני ובכך להקל במידה מסוימת על המאבק שלנו לגרום בכל ההתפשטות האיראנית הזאת לשנות כיוון ואולי להשתנות לטובתנו. אנחנו מתחילים לראות שינויים מבחינתנו שינויים דרמטיים בהבנה האמריקנית את האיומים האסטרטגיים בשל השאיפות הדרמטיות המאוד מאוד קיצוניות שיש באיראן בעת ה... Tziyutz, by the way, is a tweet, like a bird, mitzayetzet. That's the key sentence here. We see dramatic changes in America's intention to deal with the strategic threats such as the extreme aspirations of Iran. He continues, he goes on and says, thank God we have eyes and ears in Iran. That means we're, <laughs> we're pretty well embedded. 
And he says that unfortunately the uprising that we saw when during a few few uh, days ago last week when when this speech was being given unfortunately that uprising he feels is not going where it needs to go but the hope is that it will continue um and come up again at some point and ultimately lead to a uh, to a different regime hopefully to a different regime okay how about this back to the music Here's something cool, remake of uh, old classic Mikofefa Bananot. My name is Mayor Weingart, and you are tuned to the Israel Show on the Nahum Siegel Network. <laughs> השד יודע איזה שד אותו כל כך מרץ לכל המשמשים ניגשו ועושה חריץ לכל התפוזים ומנקד מקבוביות ובאפרות הנגועים הוא שם אבל יותר מכל אוהב הוא לכופף בננות מכופף הבננות
Yoni Bloch and Maya Blitzman. Mikofefa Banano, the remake of that classic. My name is Mayor Weingarten, and I am so thankful that you're here with us, tuning in, listening to uh, the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Great to have you aboard. Yesterday, January the 14th, for those who are not listening live, Palestinian Authority President Abu Mazen told the truth. (laughs) How's that? Some say he's uh, gone off the rails, but I I think that ultimately what we saw yesterday was um, the head of Palestinian Authority telling it as it is. This is the way he sees it. And he went through the history of the problem between Israel and the Palestinian Arabs. So he said this, you know, people who talk about the two-state solution say, well, Israel will withdraw to the 67 borders. And I've asked many times, why is it that they don't demand that we withdraw to the 1948 borders? Because in 1948, we also, quote-unquote, occupied Palestinian land because in that war, we acquired more territory than we were granted by the UN. And they never asked for that. So the whole thing is a bluff because they don't care about the 67 borders or the 48 borders. They don't want the Jews there, period. And Abu Mazen said that the problem doesn't really start in, in 67 or in 47. He told the truth. He said the problem starts in 1917 with the Balfour Declaration. And his theory is that the European colonialists, don't forget in those days there were huge European empires that were colonizing big parts of Africa, the Middle East, India, and utilizing them for their own benefit, getting the raw materials and so forth something that ended, more or less, with uh, World War II, the end of World War II. But Abu Mazen says the colonialists in Europe sent the Jews to this place called Palestine, this Arab place, quote-unquote, called Palestine, in order to keep a watch on the interests of the colonial powers. So the European nations sent the Jews. I mean, it's you got to follow along. I think you got to write this down in order to follow along. It's so it's so convoluted. The European powers, before and during World War One, sent Jews to Israel, what was then called Palestine, in order for the Jews to keep this area under control for the colonial European powers. And, according to Abu Mazen, this was killing two birds with one stone because the Europeans wanted to get rid of their Jews. And at the same time, according to him, you follow? And at the same time, wanted to make sure that there was not Muslim-Arab control over the whole Middle East. So they sent the Jews to Israel, and by doing that, they displaced, according to Abu Mazen's 
new history book, <laughs> the new history of the world by Abu Mazen or of the Middle East. And they displaced the Arabs, and that's why this whole conflict, and therefore the, the, uh, England, uh, Great Britain, has to apologize for the Balfour Declaration and so forth and so on. And, and there's one uh, amazing note in here. The Europeans want this is, this is I'm translating, a, but this is a quote. Europeans wanted to bring the Jews from Europe in order, as we said, to, to guard the interests of the Europeans in the area. So they requested Holland, that had the largest armada, the largest navy in the world, to take all the Jews, put them on boats, and bring them to Israel. I, I, I don't know that Holland had any such... And, and when did this happen exactly? When, when, when did these masses of Jews, when were they ported over, imported into the Middle East? I, 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 the whole thing just... I mean, we know the history. We, we, we know it very well. This is not the time to go into it in depth. We've done it before. We'll do it again. The point of all this is to say that if anybody still has a delusion that there is such a thing as a two-state solution, read this speech and wake up. This is a man, Abu Mazen, who walked away from a deal that offered him almost everything that he could possibly imagine. That deal by Ehud Olmert, that that very sad deal by Ehud Olmert. But he just walked away from it. He claimed in this speech that Omer demanded that Israel continue to remain on the Jordan River, meaning in the Jordan River Valley for security reasons, for 40, 40, 40 years, and that's why he refused to accept the deal. <sighs> yeah, that might be true today, but back then, in the waning days of the Olmert administration, pre-prison the same Abu Mazen gave an interview to the Washington Post in which he said he couldn't agree to the deal because it did not guarantee the right of return of all the Palestinian Arab refugees and that's exactly what he told Condoleezza Rice at the time as well so it's revisionist history all around. Let's have a round of applause for uh, best fictional writer in a drama, Abu Mazen, president of the Palestinian Authority. We're going to play something from Amir Benayoun. This one is called Omed Bashar. Why are we playing something from Amir Benayoun? First of all, he's an amazing, uh, amazing um, artist. Secondly, just to uh, point out to you that Amir Benayoun was invited by the Israeli delegation to the United Nations to come together with two other Israeli artists, singers, and sing a special, specially composed song as part of the UN commemoration of International Holocaust Memorial Day. 
which is coming up soon. So the other two artists got their visa no problem. When Amir Ben Ayun, who was invited by the UN delegation of Israel to come to an official event, when Amir Ben Ayun went to the embassy to get a to get a visa to enter the United States, he was denied a visa. And the reason is that they found that his his relationship, if you will, his feelings of closeness to the state of Israel, his ties, his bonds to the land are not strong enough and therefore he might end up staying in the United States and they didn't give him a visa. Obviously, this is the State Department running amok. Amir Ben Ayun himself thinks that it's uh, because he spoke out against Obama many times that this is payback and people like Dan Shapiro, the former Obama ambassador to Israel, who still lives in Israel and still, they say, pulls strings, is part of it. So he says, I don't know if this is just a conspiracy theory or true, either way, this country, where like 15 million people just walk over the border and nobody says boo, has denied an Israeli artist whose entire livelihood is in Israel from performances He's famous in Israel. He also loves Israel, and he talks about his love for Israel. He is denied entry visa to the United States because they don't think his connection to Israel is strong enough, and he may not come back. Hopefully this will be rectified in the next few days. There are people getting involved, but it's just amazing in the crazy, upside-down, bizarre world that we live in. So here's Omed Bashar, sung by Amir Ben Ayun. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You are tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Shame, she bears it. I see 
Amir Benayun with Omed Bashar. And <laughs> we figure it's an appropriate song. He is Omed Bashar. He's waiting at the door trying to get into the United States to sing at the uh, commemoration uh, of the Holocaust by the UN on International Holocaust Commemoration Day. I think it was last week or two weeks ago was the birthday of Eliezer ben Yehuda, and that was um, declared by the State of Israel in a great way as the um, day to celebrate the Hebrew language. We missed it at the time, so we'll um, get a little bit in today. Some fun facts, if you will, about the Hebrew language. Did you know that Ivrit, that's what we call Hebrew today, Ivrit, that word did not exist before the second Beit HaMikdash times. That's right. The language was called something else. The word Ivrit only starts, you know... 2,000 years ago, so for 4,000 years, or however long, it was called what? Yehudit. It was called Yehudit because we were from Eretz Yehuda, Judeans, therefore we're called Yehudim, and the language is called Yehudit, and that's the way it appears in Tanakh, in several places where foreigners come and speak to the Jewish people and they speak in foreign languages or they speak in Yehudit and says, don't speak in Yehudit and so forth. And that's one interesting thing. Most people don't realize that. I didn't realize that. Here's another one. You know how uh, we read Humash with Nekudos, as is often said. Nekudot, meaning the vowels, the little dots underneath and on top of the letters that replace the vowels and help us read. There are people who are not so fluent in Hebrew that can only read with Nikudot. So, imagine that for the first thousands of years of Jewish history, there were none. In fact, in the times of the Tanakh itself, and after that, and Galut Bavel, and the Second Temple period, and beyond, there was no such thing as Nikudot. They weren't invented yet. If you showed a Jew who was coming to bring a korban in the in the Second Beit Hamikdash, a modern chumish that we have today with the Nikudot, he wouldn't know what to do with it. The Nikudot, in fact, were invented by the Ba'alei HaMisorah, who realized that with the long galut that we're going through, it's going to be very difficult to keep things up. So they invented this system. There were more than one system. A system that survived and we use today was uh, the Tiverian system from Tiveria. The people in Tiveria put it together, the Ba'alei HaMisorah, and that's around the 10th century. Can you imagine? And what do you think that first, very first word that Eliezer ben Yehuda coined, that he introduced to the Hebrew language as he was introducing new words to cover things that weren't in existence in the time of Tanakh. The word is milon, a dictionary, from the word milah, obviously. Up until that time, they called it Sefer Milim, a book of words. And Eliezer ben Yehuda, in an article that he published, 
explained why he didn't think that that was an appropriate translation. And while we all know Eliezer ben Yehuda as the one who gets the credit for making the Hebrew language live again, it turns out that Ben Yehuda introduced approximately 220 new words to the Hebrew language. But somebody else introduced 300 words, a lot more, and we probably know his name, but we don't usually give him enough credit. Chaim Nachman Bialik introduced 300 new words to the Hebrew language, some of which have become part of the language and we use today. For example, the word matos for plane, the word matzlema for camera, from the word selem, um, you know, an image. Very cool. Figured we'd share that with you. And we'll end the show with, appropriately, the song Eliezer Ben Yehuda by... Um, Chava Alberstein. Before we do that, we're going to say thank you so much for tuning in, for making us a part of your week. Thanks for all your Facebook likes and comments. Thanks to the staff of the Nachum Siegel Network. My very special thanks, as always, to Nachum Siegel. Coming up on the Nachum Siegel Network, Yoni Pollock with After Further Review, covering the latest in the world of sports, and then the great Monday Music Marathon. Until next Monday, immediately following JM in the AM, this is Mayor Weingarten reminding you the nice guys do not finish last. Oh, no, they're just running in a different race. Nolad lo ve, hazot ha ish amar, ze ha bechor, 
Thank you. 